RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 24 for August 17th, 2008, a portrait of Francis Tumblety, with special guest Tim Reardon. Mr. Reardon is an author and researcher who has written the first and only major biography of Jack the Ripper suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, to be entitled The Great American Indian Herb Doctor, Medicine, Sex, and Respectability in the Victorian Era. Tim is as well the discoverer of the first photograph of Dr. Tumblety, which was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 92, and he is slated to be a guest speaker at this upcoming USA Jack the Ripper conference, which will take place in mid-October in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas, and joining me on the show today from Charlottesville, Virginia, is Allie Ryder. Thanks for being on the show today, Tim. My pleasure. Now, Tim, let's start off by uh, talking about the photograph of Dr. Tumblety that you've uh, discovered um, while doing research in um, the collections of the New York Historical Society. It's um, billed as the first known photograph of the doctor, taken from his 1871 um, narrative pamphlet. How did the discovery of this photograph come about and you know one thing that you didn't go into in your ripperologist article was just uh, your reaction to finding this thing actually finding the photograph was an accident um i hadn't set out to do that in fact finding the 1871 pamphlet was an accident um every once in a while if you've been doing research on something particularly online research you need to go back and check and see if anything has been added and i was in the process of doing that in a program called worldcat which is a collection of library catalogs from around the world and i had entered in tumblety's name as an author i was trying to see if there were any additional references to pamphlets that he had and i saw one and it, it had a title that was slightly different than what I had seen before, and it said it was published in 1871. And I thought, wait, he didn't publish anything in 1871. At least I'd never heard of anything. And so I looked at it a little closer. It was at the New York Historical Society. And as I read the description, it said, and it, you know, it had the usual number of pages and so on, it said, photograph pasted on the front. And I thought, wow, I'll bet that's the 1872 drawing. But I called them up and I asked them, about getting it reproduced. They couldn't reproduce the whole book, but they could do the photograph for me. And I hadn't seen it at this point, and I'm thinking, okay, it's probably the 1872 drawing, but I'll have it reproduced anyway. And so I'm waiting, and for about two weeks, I'm, I'm telling myself, no, it's not going to be a photograph. It's actually going to be the drawing, because that's just what it's going to be. It came in, and I got it, and I just sat there, and I went, wow. This, it was, not only was it a picture of him, but it is such a classic picture of him. It is so tumblety in in its its arrangement and in the look on his face and everything. And I just sat there and I was amazed at it. Um, I I was amazed as well. And I I think for for days afterwards, all I could say was wow when I looked at the picture because you're right in that it if you were if you if it envision a, a photograph of Doctor Tumblety that picture is exact i mean it fits him you know yes yes it does very in every way all he's missing is a dog i guess in the picture uh -huh. um, uh -huh. it is that amazing now this um well let's backtrack for a second the um the 
the drawing, the, what you refer to as a drawing that appears in the 1872 pamphlet, um, if I'm correct on that. Um, mm-hmm. I always thought that that drawing could have been based on a photograph. What do you know ab- about the representation of tumble tea that we're all used to seeing? And 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 um, I believe in in the 1872 pamphlet, or perhaps one of the later ones where he reproduces that again. He refers to it as a drawing based on a photograph. So somewhere out there, there's a photograph that looks like that. And this is the thing that surprises me, one of the things that surprises me about Tumblety. He's a man so into self-publication, self-promotion. Um, I'm amazed that, that there aren't more pictures of him available. It just would be something that one would expect from Tumblety. Can you go into a little bit? You said that the, um, the description was there was a photograph attached the pamphlet how exactly was it attached i mean was it you know because i'm, I'm picturing a pamphlet with a paper clip to picture on the front <laughs> i know that no paper. i believe i believe from talking to the archivist that what happened is that the pamphlet was printed and tumbledy had a bunch of pictures made and he pasted each one of the pictures onto the front of the pamphlet so when he gave it out there was a picture pasted to the front of it so you haven't seen the the physical uh, picture. I have. Well, I have seen. I have seen a uh, a Xerox copy of the whole the the front of the pamphlet, and I have a high quality reproduction of the photograph itself. Right, um, but but like you you haven't ac- actually um, touched the, the. No, I have not. The I haven't been to the New York that... Historical Society. Okay, um, but they would allow you to... to uh, they will allow see. anybody to go in and look at it, yeah. Hmm. It, it's just part of their collections. What I wanted them to do and what I'm, I'm sad they couldn't do was to photocopy the pamphlet itself because there are things in there that would be very interesting to know uh, between his 1866 biography and his 1872 biography. There are a couple of subtle changes, and they would... they. I believe that they relate to his claims against the U.S. government for his imprisonment during the Civil War. And it would be interesting to know how that changed from 1866 to 1871. Right, um, because like you had mentioned, the title of the pamphlet changed. Yes, he dropped every, all the references to Edward Stanton. And put in the the title of of somebody named Baker. And, of course, as I said in the article, that could be one of two people. It could be Lafayette Baker, who was the head of the Secret Service, or it could be uh, the provost marshal for St. Louis, who was primarily responsible for having him arrested to start with. And and I kind of lean towards it being the latter. The uh, 1871 pamphlet, the one in which um, the photograph was affixed to the front, is is the one that's uh, subtitled "How He Was Kidnapped by the Order of the Infamous Baker." Yes, and it's the 1872 pamphlet in which that's changed to Stanton. Uh, no, in 1872 they've dropped all of that. It, the title's different in 1872. I can't remember offhand, but it doesn't mention any specific person in 1872. Oh, I I, I understand. He changed it from the the 1866. Pamphlet right. Stanton was mentioned was in 1866 right. and Baker in 1871. Right, right, right. Okay. And since all of them were dead by 1872, it didn't make any difference. Right. And in the 1866 pamphlet, 
it, I mean, I agree with you. It would be really interesting to see this 1871 pamphlet because in the 1866 pamphlet, he goes after Stanton like you wouldn't believe. Oh, absolutely. So, so if he dropped it, um, so if he felt it necessary to drop Stanton's name from the top, I mean, it was kind of in vogue to go after Stanton um, at the time. Yeah. But um, if um, he dropped reference to Stanton in the title of his 1871 pamphlet, then it would be, you would expect some changes maybe to the text. Mm-hmm. So the uh, person in charge of the collections at at the New York Historical Society um, says that the photograph was actually pasted on the front. Yes. And um, because it'd be really interesting to just examine that photograph. I mean, see what the uh, back of it said is what I'm thinking. Yeah. But uh, but I assume that there's no way that they would um, let you remove the <laughs> photograph. I, I guarantee from you the that front of the happen. front of the uh, pamphlet to see the back of it to see it. You know, how many were the, printed or the only other thing. Uh, about that's interesting about how the, the photograph is attached is that the pamphlet at the New York Historical Society is signed directly under the um, photograph with yours truly, Francis Tumblety, M.D., and it's his signature. So that's kind of interesting. Hmm. Now they said they couldn't Xerox it for you. Did you ask them if someone were to go there and take digital photographs of the? I document? did not ask about that. Their uh, their problem with with xeroxing it was that the pamphlet itself is fragile and therefore the putting it on the machine and all that archivists have a real problem with that. I would imagine that if somebody were to go to the New York Historical Society, they would be able to take pictures of the pamphlet, but I don't know that for sure. Now, um, back to the picture. Uh huh. Well, first off, the quality is just amazing. Um, for being so old, they mm-hmm. they must have taken really good care of it because uh, the the image that was reproduced in Ripperologist is is just stunning. And what's amazing about that, if I can interrupt for a second, is that I had to to convert the picture that I got to a three megabyte picture to send to Ripperologist. The one that I got on a CD from the Historical Society was sixty seven megabytes. It is an incredibly detailed and high-resolution f- photograph. sake of people who haven't seen it. Um, mm-hmm. he's where, uh, the photograph is, uh, is a younger picture of Tumble Tea. We don't believe yes. that it dates from the 1870s. Um, oh, I think it does. I think it's, it's contemporary with the pamphlet, and I'll tell you why. He's dressed up in a u- uniform that makes it look like it, it is not a Prussian uniform, but it makes it look like a German uniform. And the first time that he references his, quote, European travels, where he becomes a friend of Kaiser Wilhelm and, and um, gets accepted into the household and so on and so forth, that's 1871. There's no references to that anything earlier than 1871. And so I believe that that is a contemporary portrait of him in 1871. So he would have been rough, roughly 41 years old. Yeah, in and about photograph. 41 at that time, yes. Looks like a, a guy in Well-preserved, <laughs> yeah. What's that, yes. Allie? He's well-preserved. Yes, he is. He looks much younger in his, uh, than 41. And I'm looking at the picture now, and 
which is crazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so so you're right in that he's um, in a fake Prussian. Well, I, I assume that it's not. I mean, it's a genuine it, it, helmet and everything. But um, he he is wearing quasi-military attire here. Uh huh. Have you been able to identify the type of helmet that he's wearing in this one? Or I looked at that as much as I could, and it's not a German helmet. Uh, in fact, the the plate on the front of that helmet is something that was used, or a similar plate was used on helmets for, I believe they were U.S. Uh, dragoons in the 1830s and 40s. But I think, and I haven't been able to check this out yet, but I believe that that same style of helmet is being sold by Horstman and Brothers, which is a big military supply company during the Civil War and later. But they also sell um, things like to the Knights of Columbus and, and other fraternal organizations. And I believe that, that that's basically a stage prop, something that he picked up somewhere to make him look military. But I haven't been able to track that down specifically yet. Okay, yeah, I looked um, online at, at uh, just a ton of um, Prussian helmets and yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't find a match um, at all the, with the, the little of, sundial. The interesting difference between the 1871 photograph and the drawing in 1872 is that the 1872 drawing shows him wearing a uniform which, is in fact, resembles a Prussian hussar's uniform. And I have pictures, of contemporary pictures, of individuals wearing that uniform um, from Germany. So... Between 1871 and 1872, he certainly made progress in his disguise, if you will. And the medals he's wearing on his chest um, mm -hmm. look look pretty familiar from the 1872 uh, drawing as well. Yeah, and I believe we can identify those two medals. One of them is the um, French medal that he claimed was given to him by uh, Napoleon III. And the other one, which is a big round medal, is the medal that he's carried with him since Montreal. It's the one that was supposedly awarded to him by the citizens of Montreal, which he carried with him for most of his life. And in fact, if you in, in the photograph that I have, the high-resolution photograph, you can't make out the words on the medal, except that it looks like awarded to Francis Tumblety as the first three lines. But beyond that, the photograph's not good enough to really tell. And... Um the um, 1871 pamphlet was printed in New York? Yes, it was. So uh, do you assume that the photograph was taken in New York? Uh, that would be my guess. Right. Tumblety would probably claim that it was taken in Prussia somewhere, but I believe it was taken in New York. And I believe that the background, the, the tents and the flag in the background that made such a flap at one point, I believe that's a standard Civil War backdrop for photographers. I've seen similar things, not specifically that one, but some, but ones that are very similar to that on Civil War photographs as well. Before you discovered this photograph, we did have many drawings of Tumble Tea available yes. for mm -hmm. us to view. So, whereas you, on the one hand, you would think that he would have had many more photographs taken, and he probably did, or at least one more from, that's taken from the 1872. Um, the drawing is based on another photograph. He certainly was um, illustrated in the press quite often. And the photograph does resemble the 
one that I believe was from, um, now was it the 1866 pamphlet, The Kidnapping of Dr. Tumblety, in which it shows him being grabbed by a mob? Or Yes. Uh-huh. Um, that's the closest um, drawing that really resembles him in the photograph. Other representations of him in the press show him like a little uh, a more stout individual. Yes. Uh-huh. It's just amazing nonetheless. And we'll get into uh, some of the other th- uh, things about Tumble T um, as far as, you know, there's uh, rumors that he uh, may have worn a fake mustache um, and, and things like that. And um, looking at the picture, it kind of, um, in my eyes anyway, uh, puts that claim to rest because that looks like a pretty genuine mustache to me. I think that uh, anybody who denies that Tumble T had a large mustache is probably hasn't look every every reference to him refers to a mustache right uh, there isn't there isn't a single one where people describe him where he isn't described as having a huge mustache and if it were fake it wouldn't fool that many people right there were press accounts or um um I'm not sure exactly who who had said it but you recall the one where it said uh, like it was one turning up one way and one turning down the other way and it looked like it could have been faked um, yeah, congratulations on oh, thank you. on on finding this. Uh, you made me jealous, that's for sure. Because it's always you know the dream of researchers to come across something that um, startles people in this case, and you certainly uh-huh. accomplished that. What what prompted your interest in Tumblety specifically? Because that always to me seems to be the most interesting in deciding. Um, when someone focuses on a specific individual or a specific, and what was it about Tumblety that sparked your interest to research. Okay. Well, to, to do that, we have to go back a little bit, and I have to say that my interest in the whole Whitechapel murders is, is pretty much the same that much of the public has. I'm fascinated by the idea that somebody could go in, do this sort of thing, and not get caught, and the fact that a hundred or more years later, people are still talking about it. And I have had an interest in this since I was in high school, which is a very, very, very long time ago. But I would not consider myself an expert in the field in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I can name the five, uh, five victims that people generally accept. I can name the major suspects. But if you were to get down to the day-to-day stuff of what people usually talk about, I sit there and I go, wow, that's kind of interesting. My interest in Tumblety was sparked by reading as a general reader the book, The First American Serial Killer. And I looked at that book, and the part on Jack the Ripper was really, really good. I mean, it was amazing how much detail there was in there. But I got to the part on Tumblety, and it was the worst kind of history. It was history in favor or trying to prove something. And I thought, this man has a very interesting life. I should know more about him. And so I started researching him, not specifically as whether or not he was Jack the Ripper, but rather because he seemed interesting to me and he seemed like an interesting character. And that's how I got started in in doing that research. What part about Tumblety's story in um, Evans and Ganey's book piqued your interest specifically? I mean, was it... Was it uh, the, well, I, the I Ameri- sat back... 
aspect of American history? Or No, I said I'm interested in characters, and he certainly is a character. And I sat back and I thought, and I looked at the information they had. He's implicated in the Lincoln assassination. He's thought of as Jack the Ripper. He's been arrested for, for manslaughter, for abortion, for street fights several times. He was accused of being a pickpocket. He's dealing in illegal medicines. I thought, wow, plus the fact that that he has written his own biographies. I mean, this this is a person who's crying out for a biographer, somebody who will look at his life and make some sense out of it. And I thought, this is a really interesting possibility, and that's why I started doing it. Just for the record, you don't believe that Tumblety was Jack the Ripper? No, I don't. I, 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 say, I say in the book that I don't know one way or the other. And I don't think anybody could prove one way or the other whether he was or he wasn't. That being said, my personal opinion is that he, that he is the least possible person to be Jack the Ripper. I mean, I assume just you, just like everybody else, the first that you had ever heard of Tumble T was, was with uh, uh, the book The Lodger or um, Jack the Ripper, um, the uh, first American serial killer, correct? Yes, that was the first I'd ever heard of him. And you immediately thought that there wasn't a very convincing argument there. Oh, yeah. Um, some of the stuff in there made me laugh at times. Some of it made me very upset. But, yeah, I don't think there's a very convincing argument in there at all. Okay. And um, researching Tumblety's life since the publication of that book, it makes it even worse almost, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I I think that I know Dr. Tumblethee fairly well. I've I started doing a research on his life from the from the beginning to the end. It isn't just the the short time that he was in England in 1888, and because of that, taking the entire life as as a as a whole, I just don't see him being having the personality necessary to do the sorts of things that were done in the in uh, the East End. Okay, now let's go back over some of his the highlights of his life we we know a lot more about Tumblety, i think than we know about any other jack the ripper suspect is that safe to assume i think that's pretty pretty safe to assume yeah not only not only what did he show up in the newspapers a lot which i think is more than we can say about anybody else but uh, he also produced his own uh, sales pitches which gives us a lot of information about him and what he thought about life and everything else. And because of that, he's got to be the person we know the most about, not only the historical facts about, but also the personal sort of internal workings of this person. If you look at any of the other suspects, if you look at, for instance, Druitt, we know the basic historical information about him, but we don't really know what was going on in his mind. We don't know very much about his own writings and that sort of thing. Whereas with Tumblety, he spilled it all out there over his entire life in the newspapers and pamphlets and everything else. And that gives us a remarkable view into the person that was Tumblety. Anyway, I'd like to, to say one of the things that, that strikes me about Tumblety is something that he carried with him throughout his entire life. There's a great quote from, I think it's the Bucks County Observer or Gazette or something like that, that basically talks about, it's an editorial, and it talks about Tumblety after he's come back to the United States. It says that nobody really knows who this man is because there's half the people say he's a wonderful, respected physician, and the other half say really bad things about him. And I think this is the, the key to understanding who Tumblety was, 
is that there were two parts of him. There was a part of him that tried very hard to be respectable and to be accepted into society and to present himself as a major player on the world stage. And then there's this other half that he's always getting involved in something, whether it be abortion or sex or uh, homosexuality or any number of other things. But there's always this other side of him that he tries to keep hidden. And I think the central issue in Tumblety's life is the balancing act between these two parts of him. And in 1888, what happened is that he fell off the tightrope, that that balancing act was disturbed when all of the information about him was spread all the way across the world, in, or across the United States anyway, in hundreds of newspapers. And no longer could he go to another place and start again because everybody knew who he was and everybody knew what there was about him. And that's probably the major crisis in his life is not so much the problems in London, but what happened afterwards with the, with the papers in the United States. Right. I'd have to agree with that. It's, uh, from some of these reports that came out after he came back to the United States uh, that we learned about um, some of his uh, early years in Rochester, New York, the fact that he was claimed that he uh, sold pornography and at the canals. So Tumble T, the, the first stories we, we hear about Tumble T aren't necessarily flattering. Oh, absolutely not. The The reference that you're talking about is from a, an acquaintance of his uh, in Rochester uh, who had been a uh, canal boat captain and talks about him running along the edge of the canal, a dirty, awkward, uncared for boy. This is This is a very unflattering portrait, but if you think about that, that event happened in, let's say, 1848, 49, 50, somewhere in that neighborhood. Within six years, he's a, a respected physician with a lot of money. One wonders about that quote a lot in terms of what it actually means and, and, and the person who said it. I think the, the idea of him selling pornography on the the boats along the Erie Canal is another good example of things getting quoted out of context or without fully understanding what was going on. Uh, the gentleman who made that quote, also the, um, the canal boat captain, said that he was selling books that today would be uh, against the law, uh, the Comstock law. And the Comstock law is generally against the, the mailing of pornography throughout the United States. But at that time, pornography also included such subjects as birth control, um, abortion, and other kinds of sexual-related things. Even, even the full description of male and female sexual organs was considered pornography under the Comstock Law. And you think about that, and you think about it about what Tumblety was doing at the time. He's reported to be an apprentice at something called Dr. Lispinard's Hospital. Dr. Lispinard's hospital is actually a doctor's office. It's not a hospital. It's a doctor's office, and it's run by a man named Dr. Ezra Reynolds. Ezra Reynolds has been in the medicine business for a long time. He had shops in other places in New York, and he finally settled in Rochester. And he took Tumblety on as an apprentice. He, in, in medical terms in the 19th century, Reynolds would be referred to as Tumblety's preceptor. Unlike today, when, when people learn medicine, they go to medical school for a number of years, then they go to a hospital and whatever, 
In the 19th century, it was very unusual to go to a medical school. And even the medical schools that people went to in the 1850s lasted at most six months to a year. Almost all doctors, no matter what their particular stripe, learned medicine by doing it under somebody else. That is, they taught them in the process of doing it. And during that time, the apprentice was required to do whatever the doctor wanted him to do, and that might include selling his books. It might include sweeping the floor, which is something else that Tumblety is referred to have been doing for Dr. Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds produced, or I should say, a book was produced by Dr. Lispinard, who doesn't actually exist, that details the diseases common to men and women of a sexual nature. And this is the book that was being sold on the Erie Canal boats. Within a couple of years, Reynolds puts his own name on it, but it's the same book that's being produced. And although it's considered pornography under the Comstock law, which is what the context of that is, it is less that and more a way of enticing patients to come into the doctor's office to get treated for various things that they think is wrong with them. Oh, I see. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Tumblety went off to start his own doctor's operation, for lack of a better way to call it an office. Yes. Um, in, in Rochester um, uh-huh. a- after working for Dr. Reynolds. Yes. And, and this is uh, one of the first instances of him using an alias. Is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is in keeping with what Dr. Reynolds was doing. Right. Dr. Reynolds worked... Uh, was in charge of Dr. Lispinard's office, but Dr. Lispinard didn't exist. Tumblety was in charge of Dr. Sternberg's office, who was an old German physician who didn't exist. And there's a very strong possibility that the reason why Tumblety opened an office as Dr. Sternberg is that Reynolds decided he needed to have more offices. That is, it's a branch office of uh, Reynolds' operation. In one, you have Dr. Lispinard, who Reynolds fills in for. In the other, you have Dr. Sternberg, who Tumblety fills in for. He did the same sort of thing in Albany, New York, before he came to to, uh, Rochester. And in Albany, when he decided to leave, he sold the business to the other group of people who were running the branch offices. And so... Yes, while Tumblety does seem to have become, does seem to have used an alias, so to speak, it's not quite the same thing. It seems to be a business kind of thing that he learned from Dr. Reynolds. Right. Okay. At what point did um, Tumblety become an Indian herb doctor? Well, Reynolds, Dr. Reynolds was in Rochester as early as uh, 1850. And Tumblety seems to have become Dr. Sternberg around 1852 or 1853. There's a book that's produced in Rochester at that time for Dr. Sternberg. And all of the cases end, the last case is in 1853. So it's about that time period. In 1853, a new person comes to Rochester. His name is Dr. Rudolph J. Lyons. And he's referred to as the great American Indian herb doctor. Uh, from South America. And uh, Lyons takes Tumblety under his wing and trains him as an Indian doctor. 
And it's interesting to look at Reynolds' advertisements in the 1850s, not Reynolds, I'm sorry, Lyons' advertisements in the 1850s are exactly the ones that Tumblety will be using in the 1860s in Canada, including the poetry, our motto, and the other things that characterize Tumblety's advertisements in Canada are used by Dr. Lyons in Rochester uh, in the 1850s. And so it's from Dr. Lyons that Tumblety gets his true persona as the Indian herb doctor. And this is something that he'll take with him pretty much for the rest of his life. The United States was crawling with um, Indian herb doctors oh, yeah. at, at uh-huh. this time and having um, letters, testimonials from patients mm-hmm. was, was a big part of their um, ad campaigns. Yeah, but we shouldn't emphasize that too much because testimonials were important for everyone at the time. Even for stove manufacturers and for people who produced soap and so on. In an era when there is not national advertising, you have to rely on local people. And testimonial letters were the most important thing for any manufacturer or offer, offerer of a service to have. And while we look at them and we say we can laugh at Tumblety's testimonials, we look at them and with our medical knowledge, we can say that can't possibly be true and so on and so forth. They are right in the tradition of soap manufacturers and stove manufacturers and bridal manufacturers and everybody else who was producing something in the early 19th century used testimonial letters because that's the way you demonstrated to people that you were respectable. And, and he, um, as, as you know, whipped one out in the interview he gave for the world Yes. after he returned from London in, in um, 1888. Uh-huh. Um, so he was still in, in that, you know, he wasn't trying to sell anything necessarily in that interview. But nevertheless, he, he uh, continued to rely on these letters, you know, in order to uh, speak towards his character. Um, oh, yeah. Um, that's a very, very important thing for Tumblety throughout his life. And certainly when he stopped practicing medicine in the 1880s. Testimonial letters became less important to him in in what he's selling and more important to him in respectability. And he he had a habit of writing letters to prominent people and waiting for them to respond. And then he would take whatever parts of those letters seemed complimentary and he would then publish them. And he right. continued to do that right up until the time he died. Even in the in the early in eighteen late eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundred, when he's working on his last biography, he's still writing letters to people saying, "Hi, I'm Francis Tumblety, and and I want to tell you how much I admire you," and waiting for them to write back so he can then say he's a correspondent of of this person or that person. Right. Let's uh, talk about his first arrest because that came pretty uh, early in in his career also. Uh-huh. Um, Are you talking th- this about This was for uh, writing uh, obscene poetry or ah. dis- distributing obscene poetry. I'd be very happy to tell to talk about that, but I have to tell you that it never happened. Oh, okay. Um this is based on the uh newspaper reporter Uh, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Hart, out in San Francisco. And if you look at at the story, it's a very interesting story, but it doesn't refer to Tumblety. He talks about the uh, stepson of a very prominent minister and the man who sank 
the presidential candidate using the three R's. Well, that that particular event is an actual event, and it happened in 1884. And the man's name was Burchard, Samuel Burchard. And he had three stepsons by the name of Leeds. If you look at their ages and compare it to the story that Hart was telling, the only one that actually fits something that could have happened would have been the middle son who was of the right age in, I think, 1857. We can place Tumblety already in Canada by that time period. Probably the most telling part of that, however, is that Hart says that this all happened the year before he went west. Well, he went west in 1861. So there's no way that those two parts of the story can be true. There is no reference to anything like this happening anywhere in New York, at the, anywhere in the 1850s or 60s. Plus, on top of that, he said that Tumblety went to jail for a year. Well, there is no place in Tumblety's life where he's absent for a year. I don't know what Hart was talking about, but he wasn't talking about Tumblety. Huh. Okay. This guy is just surrounded by so many myths. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. And, <laughs> um, so uh, he, he, went to, he went up to Canada in 1856, you said. Uh, yes. And he ended up settling in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I mean, he, he roamed around quite a bit, but um, he kind of made Toronto, or he declared Toronto his home base. Um, mm-hmm. He got into some trouble, or I'll let you yeah. maybe, maybe prove me wrong, but uh, according to the myth, he got into some trouble up in Toronto, uh, or actually it was in Montreal, I believe. Well, he um, was in trouble he, in both places. Well, why, uh, why don't you describe some of, some of his early Canadian years? Okay, well... Tumblety seemed to travel around a lot in the early in early 1856. He left Rochester in 1855, and we know that because of the certificate that he got a number of prominent people in Rochester to sign for him, which they were later very upset about. But what's important about the dating of this is that it includes the name of the mayor and the and and a former mayor, and the only time that those two people are what they're described of as that is mayor and former mayor, is 1855. And he shows up almost immediately in the Canadian newspapers in 1856. So he left Rochester sometime in 1855 or early 1856. He traveled around Western Canada, stopping at various places, much the way Dr. Lyons did. Lyons used Rochester as his home base, but he traveled all over the state of New York, spending as much as a day or two in various places until he came back to his base in Rochester. And this is what Tumblety was doing. And when he got to Toronto, this is what he did. He, he set up his main office in Toronto, and he went from place to place in cities around Toronto. Uh, the first trouble that he ran into was with an individual, a farmer, that he uh, offered to cure of some sort of disease or complaint. And um, the, he was going to charge him, I think it was $25, but the guy didn't have enough money. And so he said, well, I'll take your watch. And so the guy gave him his watch, and of course he took the medicine and it didn't work. So he got dr- dragged into court for claiming to be a doctor and then was fined 20 pounds. That was his first real run-in with the law. 
That wasn't as serious, however, as what happened in Montreal. He moved to Montreal. He kept his office in Toronto. That never closed, but he moved to Montreal to set up another office. And while he was there, as soon as he got there, there was opposition to him from the local medical establishment. There's a Dr. Jones who seems to have taken it into his head that Tumblety was a, a threat to the community and, and needed to be eliminated. And so Jones arranged with a detective by the name of Simard to trap Tumblety. He, Tumblety had been giving out a book called The Guide to the Inflicted, Afflicted, uh, both in Toronto and Montreal. And this is one of those books that we talked about that has practical explanations about human reprodu reproduction. It has comments on masturbation and abortion and other kinds of things. And so Simard went and found a prostitute and got her to come with him to Tumblety's office where Simard told the doctor that she was in a family way and they needed to do something about it. And according to Simard and the, and the prostitute, Tumblety gave her some medicine saying that this would take care of the problem. And so they left. And almost immediately, the detective came back and arrested Tumblety for selling drugs that would cause an abortion. A number of things happened as a result of this, including the trial. But there was a great outcry in the newspapers over Tumblety's arrest because this was seen as an as a, uh, entrapment. Right. Uh, you know. So on one side, Simard was testifying that Tumblety gave them the medicine for to cause an abortion. On the other side, Tumblety and his assistant swore that it was for headaches and back pain. And in fact, if you look at the kinds of medicine described, back pain and headaches is pretty much all this medicine would would have any effect on if it had any effect at all. In essence, Tumblety was acquitted of this simply because it was their word against his. There wasn't any evidence one way or the other. And the chemist who testified as to the makeup of Tumblety's medicine basically said that it wouldn't have the effect. Well, actually, I should go back and say that there were two chemists, one of whom smelled the, the liquid and said, oh, yeah, it's got, abor it's got stuff that in it that will cause abor abortions. And the other one was a physical chemist who actually looked at it and said, no, it's got this, 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 and this in it, and none of them would have that effect. So in essence, there was no, there was no case, and the grand jury refused to indict him. And, and he went on to um, get in a legal battle with his attorney. Yeah, his attorney, one of his attorneys was Bernard Devlin, who people make a big deal out of the fact that, that the two attorneys who represented him, Devlin and Drummond, were soon to be involved in a major political upheaval in Canada. Right. That is, they were the opposition and they would then they would soon take government positions. The problem with that is that if you look at the Toronto newspapers or Montreal newspapers during this time period, if there's a defense attorney, it's either going to be Devlin or Drummond or both of them. Right. Their association with Tumblety has no special significance whatsoever other than the fact that they were the best defense attorneys available, and he hired them to do that. When he hired Devlin, there was a disagreement over how much money was owed for his fee, Devlin having basically the idea that he should get paid for thinking about the case, not just actually working on the case. 
and in fact that set a precedent in uh, Canadian law that you needed to make an agreement over the actual fee before you actually started working for somebody. In the end, Tumblety paid very little for Devlin services. These incidents do uh, start what just becomes a whole series of uh, trouble that Tumblety manages to get himself into. Yes. And um, after this, he, I mean, I don't want to say he starts acting erratically, but he uh, he lets his, he's fined a large amount of money for letting his horse run free along in the streets of Toronto, right? And it, Yeah. Well, I was just going to skip ahead, uh, but uh-huh. you can have something to say about that if you want. Well, I was going to say that, that Tumblety seemed to have a really bad problem with horses in that the, he had he had the in Montreal at the same time that he's on trial for for procuring an abortion, his sled got away from him, and was and he and his assistant were dumped out into the the um, into the into a snowbank, and the person who came along and rescued them was the prosecutor in the case against him, and then in uh, in Toronto. I guess it was it was warmer because he was re- riding a, uh, a wagon or a, uh, whatever you call a horse-drawn carriage. I guess the horse broke away from the carriage and injured several uh, injured another person fairly severely. So he had a real hard problem. Maybe that's why he started riding horses instead of uh, instead of uh, riding in a carriage. There's report that he uh purposefully untied his horse in toronto and let it run wild is that is that what you're referring to where the horse actually broke loose from his carriage i've never heard that that he he purposely allowed it to to run free okay what the newspaper says is that it broke free and uh went running off from the carriage but i've never seen a report that that talked about it uh intentionally doing that okay the heat was kind of getting on him in, in Canada. Uh-huh. Um, so he he was also um, fined for practicing without a license in Toronto, I believe, before yes. before he, he left uh, Canada and returned uh-huh. to the United States. And he went back to New York City. Or he, he went to New York. Maybe this was He traveled a lot. Let, let's put it that way. He went to different places. He was in Buffalo. He went to Rochester to visit his family and other things. He went to Boston. Uh, he was in Boston for almost a year and a half uh, before he went to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. And this is around the year 1860. Um, yeah, 1858, 960. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in New Brunswick that he gets in quite a bit of trouble. Yes, he, uh, he treats a patient. And that patient dies. And this is a problem for all alternative physicians. And you see this quite frequently in newspaper accounts of Indian herb doctors or eclectic doctors or whatever, is that when the patient dies, people automatically sue them in a way that they don't sue regular doctors. And this is exactly what happened in New Brunswick, in St. John's, is that Portman, the, the patient, died and a grand jury was put together, and it it's, should be pointed out that the chairman of the grand jury was the brother of the doctor who had treated Portman before and who treated him after Tumblety stopped treating him, which I think is an interesting point. The other thing is that it, it's clear from the newspaper accounts that after Portman had this problem, 
that Dr. Humphrey, who was the, do- the regular doctor who had been treating him before, went to see him and took up the treatment again. This is a very important point in my mind simply because the way regular doctors treated people at the time was either through bleeding or the use of mercury. If you take an already weakened patient and you bleed them, you're going to cause a crisis. And it's very possible that this is exactly what happened to Portman. We don't know. We don't know one way or another. There is nothing in Tumblety's medicines that could have caused the symptoms referred to in the inquest. Uh, So we're stuck with the idea of how this happened. Tumblety did not make his own medicines. They were made for him by pharmacists that he bought them from. Well, he might have put his name on them, but he didn't make them. And the pharmacist testified as to what was in the medicines. And none of them should have been a serious problem. But Portman died anyway. And the implication was that he died from Tumblety's treatment. Right. That's an interesting point because that this, um, as far as uh, the suspect case against Tumblety and the Jack the Ripper crimes, some would want to make out that as an alternative to being Jack the Ripper, they'd like to portray Tumblety as some kind of serial poisoner. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying here, Tumblety didn't even have anything to do with concocting the remedies that, that he sold to people. We have two or three times in his career when his medicines are analyzed. And the people uh, who analyze them or who talk about what's in them are often the people who made them for him. And because of that, we have a good sense of what he was doing. And he wasn't using anything that would would poison people or kill them or whatever. Uh, It was standard Indian herb medicine. It's the kind of, in fact, at one point, uh, I think it's in Montreal, several of the ingredients that are put into the medicine in Montreal are patent medicines that other people make that are put into his medicine. Have you written written about that? at all i haven't yeah. published anything on oh, it okay no. because that's the first time i've heard it suggests of the relationship between portman's do- uh, doctor and the um what did you say it was the prosecutor or the judge who, the, the oh, person who was in i i care he's the, i think he's the coroner oh, the okay who, who had the inquest but they're brothers right they're, yeah that, that that's 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 amazing because like this 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 death of, of Portmore. I thought this name was Portmore. Is it Portman or Portmore? I think you're right. I think it's Portmore. Yeah. You know, his death is, is um, talked about a lot um, uh-huh. in, in the case against Tumblety. So that brings us up to uh, the outbreak of the Civil War. Yes. And uh, Tumblety is pretty much in New York City at this time. Is that right? Yes. He's, he's in New York from the time he flees away from uh, New Brunswick. Right. We didn't mention that. Tumblety fled these charges. Yeah, the uh, the, the uh, outcome of the grand jury was pretty much certain, given the fact, given the relationship between the uh, the coroner coroner and the doctor who ultimately treated the patient. So I, I Tumblety decided to get out of town while the getting was good, and he left very quickly, and he went to New York from that point. New York is is a, a whole nother kettle of fish for Tumblety. So he gets in some kind of a, a check forging situation. 
that's a very interesting uh, event in his life and one that's very little understood. We should talk about that for okay, a minute. Sure. Tumblety hires a man named Charles Welpley, who at the time Tumblety first meets him is, is 17 or 18 years old. And he hires him as his personal secretary. This is something that Tumblety has started doing in Canada and will continue throughout all of his life. That is, he finds an attractive young man, he hires him, and eventually makes advances to him. Sometimes they're accepted and sometimes they're not. Tumblety had brought a bunch of money with him and put it into the chemical bank in New York. Uh, and he drew out of that account on regular basis. Eventually, he went to draw out the last $100 that should have been in that account and found out that he was already overdrawn. Someone had written a $400 check for the last of the money that was in the account. And so, Wepley, the Charles Wepley had simply disappeared. In fact, we, we believe that he has gone to, to Connecticut, back to where uh, he had some relatives. So, Tumblety starts an action against the chemical bank for accepting a check that was forged. The bank says, no, it's your signature, and, and we accepted it. Uh, one thing that's left out there, they, the Tumblety's uh, lawyer specifically asks if Tumblety cashed the check, and the, the teller at the time makes a very ambiguous answer to that, but the, the general gist is, no, it wasn't Tumblety who cashed the check. It's interesting that, that Tumblety got on the wrong side of the Chemical Bank of New York because they went after him full bore. One of the individuals who was the prosecuting attorney in this particular instance was also the owner of the uh, New York Sun or an editor at the New York Sun. I can't remember which it was. But he was also involved with the National Police Gazette. And this is where the story of Tumblety and the editor comes from. There is an article that was published in the Police Gazette in 1861 called How an Irishman Becomes an Indian Herb Doctor, which outlined Tumblety's history in New Brunswick and in Canada. I would dearly love to see this, but no... Uh, no copies of this particular issue exist anymore. It just, it, it, I believe it was the June 1860 issue of the National Police Gazette, and it doesn't exist. But the chemical bank chose to fight this not as a forged check scheme, but rather on the respectability of Dr. Tumblety, and they crucified him in the newspaper. In the end, uh, Tumblety got nothing out of it, Wepley became a um, witness for the prosecution. Eventually, Tumblety's lawyers called this individual who was the other prosecutor to the stand and put him through the ringer, and you could see how the chemical bank had been fixing things so that they would have no responsibility. Uh, but in the end, uh, Tumblety lost. He, he was not given back his $400. He, he got nothing out of it, and uh, Wepley was allowed to go free. That that was pretty much his only skirmish in New York. Yeah, he didn't stay there much longer than that. Before he moved off to Washington, D.C., right? Yes. Uh-huh. During the Civil War, we get some stories about Tumblety that are from a dubious source, to say the least. Um, ah, yes. And, and, um, and Dunham, the eminent lawyer, yes. 
what are your thought on what Tumblety's political views were during the Civil War and you know what what do you think he uh, I mean you, you had said earlier that you know that he um, liked to, to try to associate himself with prominent people and so that at this time in history the you know most prominent um, individuals were in the military or in politics in Washington DC but what what are your ideas of what was going on with Tumblety during the Civil War period well if I had to guess, if Tumblety had any leanings at all, it was to the, towards the Union, not the Confederacy, just based on his upbringing and where he was from. But the idea of him hanging around with uh, – specifically, they're talking about George McClellan and how he was supposed to become a staff surgeon on McClellan's staff in the Army of the Potomac. And at first, that seems rather ridiculous, and many of the professional journals treated it that way. However, you need to understand the context in which this was happening. General McClellan um, had several family members on his own side who were prominent, respectable physicians. When he got sick in 1861, which disabled him in December, he called on his wife's father, who was a homeopathic physician. He had an idea, he, he seemed to have respect for alternate uh, physicians. On top of that, there was a very strong push in Congress at that time to have other kinds of physicians accepted into the army. Ultimately, in 1862, that came to nothing. But there was a real strong party in Congress for opening up the medical department of the army and certainly the volunteer units to physicians of other kinds of medicine other than simply the, the regular physicians. So the idea that Tumblety might have been hanging around with McClellan is not such a, not such a silly idea. Um, we also, there's also a story that he uh, took care of um, Robert Lincoln after a fall up in New York in the early 18 in early in 1861 and so this may be a way that you know Tumblety makes a big deal of meeting Abraham Lincoln this may be one way of his getting into that there are so many possibilities and no proof uh, there's nothing in the Lincoln papers that give any indication that he ever met or even knew who Tumblety was so Again, we're Is stuck. this a claim that Tumblety makes that, that he Yes, uh, Tumblety claims to have met Abraham Lincoln in well, his, through to the treatment of, of his son or? No, that that's in a separate newspaper article. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's because uh, Robert Lincoln um, was the ambassador in London in eighteen eighty eight. Ah. Um, uh -huh. so one would think that Tumblety is a name dropper. You know, yeah, and and yeah. if he did in fact have some kind of connection to Robert Lincoln, that would have came up. Um, yeah, but yeah, because um, Robert Lincoln was um, was dis this is kind of a, a, an aside, but uh, Robert Lincoln was kind of discussed as a presidential candidate in the late 1880s, but bowed out. Um, but he did he did hold that position as U.S. ambassador to England. Um, and uh, I did during, not know that during the time that yeah. During uh -huh. the time that Tumblety was there, so that's kind of interesting. I I'd never heard of, of him um, supposedly treating Robert Lincoln before, but uh, around the same time is where you get the um, Stanford Conover slash mm -hmm. Colonel Dunham claims about Tumblety. 
Yeah. That didn't come out until after the Jack the Ripper. I mean, they weren't made public until uh, 1888. Yeah, um, right. It came out in December, December 3rd of, or December 1st of 1888 is when it first appeared in the newspapers. Um, well, first describe what uh, Conover's connection to Tumble Tea was. These two guys have uh, just uh, seemingly went, went back and forth at each other. More Conover against Tumble Tea than vice versa than Tumble yeah. Tea against Conover. But it's an interesting pairing. These two Dunham, individuals. Yeah, Dunham claimed to have met Tumble Tea in July of 1861 in Washington. Tumble Tea probably wasn't in Washington at that point, but nonetheless. Dunham's claim to fame is as Sanford Conover, where he's convicted of perjury before the military commission involved in the investigating the Lincoln assassination. Most of what we know about Dunham's association with Tumblety comes out of one newspaper article that was written probably by Dunham, quoting himself after the Jack the Ripper stuff came through. And just in looking at that particular at that particular piece, one has to uh, one has to look at what he would have known and how he would have known it and what he says. And there's not anything that's verifiable in that particular piece. In fact, there are some things that are glaringly obviously wrong. And because of that, it calls into question Dunham's entire knowledge of Tumblety. Uh, to start with. He talks about Tumblety having an office on H Street in Washington. H Street, if you look at H Street in contemporary maps at the time, H Street is a very underdeveloped street with very few houses on it, and those are all residential. Tumblety's office, on the other hand, is in what's known as the, the Washington Buildings, uh, 344 Pennsylvania Avenue. Even 25 years later, there's no way... Dunham should have confused H Street with Pennsylvania Avenue. Pennsylvania Avenue was the social and economic center of Washington, D.C., much the way uh, it's the political center today. It was the first and only street to have a sidewalk. It was the place that all the hotels were on. It was a major, in fact, Tumblety's office sits on the major crossroads between Pennsylvania and 7th. And 7th was the major business district, Pennsylvania was the major social area, and so it sits in exactly the right place to, for Tumblety's kind of, of advertisement and medicine. And there's no way that, that Dunham could have unintentionally mistaken H Street and Pennsylvania Avenue, particularly not if he, if he was as familiar with Tumblety as he said he was. Uh, the reason why I think he quoted H Street is because in many minds, H Street was associated with the Lincoln assassination. It was on H Street that Mary Surratt had her boarding house. And although he didn't come out and say that, the, the impression that Dunham wanted to create was that Tumblety was somehow associated with Mary Surratt. Right. And so H Street was important for that it's Conover's claim that Tumblety possessed a menagerie of uteri in jars, uh, and he was shown this collection yes. at, at a dinner party after Tumblety had made some disparaging remarks about – or someone had questioned as to why Tumblety had no women um, yes. at his uh, gatherings, and um, and he made some disparaging remarks about women and then proceeded to invite 
everyone into the drawing room to show them his collection of uteruses. Mm -hmm. That's one of the major uh, things. I mean, you when you hear about Tumblety as the Jack the Ripper suspect, um, that that claim is now anyone who who looks into it knows knows that that it, it's um, I would say most definitely not true. But nevertheless, it's still one of the claims that gets brought up is that Tumblety sure. had a collection of, of uteri. I'd like you to explain after after the Lincoln assassination. Well, first of the the press reported after the Lincoln assassination, after Tumblety's arrest um, in St. Louis, Tumblety did have connections to Mary Surratt through David Harold, who was a, a, a pharmacist assistant, if if I'm not mistaken, yes. by profession was um, one of Tumblety's lackeys while, while he was in Washington, D.C. around this period of time. And, and it was Dunham who, as you mentioned, um, uh, stood trial for perjury based on um, the lies he told at the Lincoln conspiracy trial based on his, uh, the yellow fever plot, which Tumblety was implicated in. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Lincoln assassination, so these so these two characters must have crossed paths, uh, wouldn't you think? Or was Tumblety just a horrible victim of circumstance, and Dunham used that for his own publicity's sake? You know, in 1888. Um, what what are your, your thoughts on that? I think mess? that I I don't I don't know that there's anybody who can demonstrate one way or the other whether or not Tumblety and Dunham came across each other in Washington. I think there's a very likely good possibility that they came across each other in Brooklyn after the war. Dunham says specifically that he was in Tumblety's office in Brooklyn. And I know from, from background that both of them were in Brooklyn at the time. So that's a very real possibility. I think that, that, that uh, Dunham's article on Tumblety, written in 1888 was pure and simple Dunham's way of making money. That is, writing a newspaper article that he would get paid for. And it was a hot topic at the time, so he probably got paid more for it, particularly if he could actually implicate this person as being more likely to be Jack the Ripper. So you don't believe that Dunham... I mean, we should probably explain some of this just for the sake of sure. our audience. Um, after the Lincoln assassination, Tumblety was, uh, got in trouble for um, wearing a fake military uniform. Is that correct? Okay. Let, let, let's, let's start with his move to, to St. Louis. Okay. He moves to St. Louis in, uh, eight, early, early in 1865. And within a month, he's arrested by the provost marshal for wearing a uniform that looks too much like a union officer's uniform. Right. And he's held for two or three days, and then they let him go, telling him not to dress that way anymore. After Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, there's a great, you know, throughout the United States, there's a whole thing about finding the assassins and the conspiracy and so on and so forth. The interesting thing about Tumblety's arrest after the Lincoln assassination is that it starts with a lie told by a young man in Brooklyn. When Tumblety had been in Brooklyn before he went to St. Louis, the papers refer to them refer to him as living with two young men. One of them's name was J.H. Blackburn, who actually 
is known to, to us as Mark Blackburn, the one who was associated with Tumblethy throughout much of his life. The other one was a younger man who, according to the papers, took care of the horses. When Tumblety up and left Brooklyn to go to St. Louis, he took Blackburn with him. He left the other kid there. That kid got arrested for trying to steal a watch. In order to save himself, he told the detectives he knew something about the Lincoln assassination. And what that was, was that Tumblety was associated with Harold in New York, and Harold and he had both left Brooklyn for parts unknown. That went out as a newspaper story, which, was read, which came over the wires and was printed in St. Louis. As a result of that story, Baker, who was the provost marshal in St. Louis, on his own initiative, had Tumblety arrested. There are many reasons why he had Tumblety arrested. One, of course, is the possibility that he might actually be associated in some way with the conspiracy. The other reason, which seems to have been a real common thing for Baker, is that every time somebody was arrested by Baker, a lot of their personal possessions disappeared. Tumblety claims to have lost a lot of money when his safe was opened. That money was never returned, and it became the basis of his claim against the United States at one point. But his arrest as part of the Lincoln assassination was a purely local thing to start with. In fact, Baker wired the Secretary of War saying, I have him, what should I do with him? And the Secretary of War or his assistant said, send him to Washington and we'll deal with it, basically. So that's how Tumblety got arrested and sent to Washington where he went to the old Capitol prison. But it had more to do with the newspaper accounts than any order coming out of Washington. Now, was Tumblety uh, using the alias J.H. Blackburn? That's a good question. And the reason why it's a good question is because in the newspaper reports in Brooklyn, they are referred to as separate individuals, Francis Tumblety and J.H. Blackburn. In the 1865 city directory of St. Louis, there is the firm J.H. Blackburn and Company Physicians, consisting of Francis Tumblety and J.H. Blackburn. Hmm. When Provost Marshall writes to Washington, he says, I have Tumblety and his associates, J.H. Blackburn and Oregon Wilson. So the Provost Marshall is referring to them as two separate people, but it seems like Tumblety has been associated with the name Blackburn by default. And it may be that very quickly after that, Luke Blackburn came to prominence as part of the Yellow Fever plot. And because of that, somehow all of that got mixed up into one thing. Of which Stanford Conover had a major role. Right. Inventing, uh, um, well, he didn't quite, I mean, Luke, Luke Blackburn. Um, it's very possible that there was a, a Yellow Fever plot. Right. Uh, Blackburn would eventually deny it. It's very, very possible. That, I mean, the Canadian secretary up in, in Toronto said that, that Blackburn had suggested this as a possibility. So they obviously were talking about it. Right. But what Conover did was to, to provide the military commission exactly what it wanted. It provided that He provided them with the justification for blaming the Confederate leadership for this. Right. And that's basically what he was what he was what his false testimony was about. Right. Um, bec 
just to elaborate on that, it's uh, uh, one of the things that um, came out in the conspiracy trial was that Booth was associated in Baltimore with a supposed attempt uh, attempted shipment of blankets contaminated with yellow fever from uh-huh. Luke Blackburn. So Tumble Tea somehow, in the eyes of the union, apparently morphs into someone with a last name. I mean, it, it, it's always puzzled me because they knew who Luke Blackburn was, um, yeah. and and um, they knew what he looked like. I mean, you know, he he wasn't he he wasn't. He was nobody. very prominent, yeah. Right, um, but yet they hold Tumble Tea under suspicion at the old Capitol prison right. for for well after the. Um, conspirators were hung mm-hmm. i mean tumblety doesn't get released until uh, i think a couple weeks after the execution yeah. of of um of harold and Payne and surratt and both surratts um and and azerholt and it's only through the unraveling of stanford conover's testimony on the stand at the at the yellow in the, in the yellow fever part of the conspiracy trial it does it seem that tumble tumble release coincides with um everybody that stanford conover accused of being involved in in some plot and it starts to just fizzle if it's a coincidence that Tumble Tea was wrapped up into this, and then, and then, um, you know, in 1888, Conover pops up again to create this uh, lie that you know adds so much weight to Tumble Tea being uh, a supposed weight to Tumble Tea being uh, Jack the Ripper. It's just, it's just an ama- amazing twist of fate, don't you agree? Oh yeah, uh, I don't know, you know, other than other than the uh, the money he got from writing the article, I don't know. Why Dunham would choose to to pop up at that particular time, uh, unless he had some kind of personal animosity, according to his biographer, he carried uh, carried grudges for a really long time. Uh, it may be that that he and Tumblety had words or something at some point, and and this was a way of actually getting back at him. I don't know. Right, uh, and uh, maybe that's something in the 1871 narrative. Also, oh, that's because, a possibility too. Because um, that's one of the things that always surprised me. I mean, you you say that Tumblety um, was uh, probably in support of the Union upon the outbreak of the Civil War, but after uh, his experience at the old Capitol prison, he he seems to turn against the Union government in a pretty big way, and, and Stanton in particular. Oh yeah, um, but but he does. Uh, couch a lot of his um, language in and in individual rights, uh-huh. you know, um, which was a major complaint, of course, of of Abraham Lincoln is that he suspended, is that he yeah. declared martial law and suspended um, individual rights, and so Tumblety gets gets pretty vicious at at the Union government and the and and the way he was treated specifically. Sure. Uh huh. That always le- led me to kind of suspect that maybe he he had there was something else there. You know, maybe I'm conspiracy minded, but I I do <laughs> I I see the towns Tumblety chooses to to frequent, uh-huh. um, St. Louis in particular um, during yeah. uh, the early part of the Civil War was uh, not a Union town. I mean, it was no. uh-uh. it, it was a Union state uh, only through occupation. 
and Washington D.C. itself uh, leaned Confederate, and uh-huh. New York, um, you know, and Montreal was considered the Richmond of the North, and mm-hmm. it was the headquarters of the Confederate conspiracy, or the it was the headquarters of, of Blackburn and his associates, um, and the Confederacy, and, and the and right in the Confederacy in Canada, and so. You know, it is interesting that Tumbles should choose to reside in all of these towns that were were the hotbeds of Confederacy, while being a Union man, and then end up getting in this kind of trouble with being accused of being in the Yellow Fever plot and all this. I just find it, you know, amazing. Yeah. The Montreal connection in particular, um, and St. Louis kind of puzzles me as to why he would choose those two places as those weren't union towns. Um, uh-huh. So. Well, I think that, I think that Tumblety was, was motivated more by where he thought he could sell his medicine right. than by any politics involved. Right. And, uh, I don't know why he chose St. Louis. In fact, there are many things about Tumblety's life. We don't know why he chose to do one thing or the other. Um, but that's just the way it is. Right. Oh, and another point is 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 about his his arrest for wearing fake military attire in St. Louis. It was routinely the practice of border ruffians, is what they were called, or uh-huh. um, in particular, you know, uh, Confederate raiders operating in Missouri and um, and into Kansas and and also in northern Arkansas to wear mm-hmm. fake uniforms that resembled Union. Um, uniforms uh-huh. um, so that he would and this was going on all over the place I mean Quant- Quantrill's Raiders and Bloody Bill Anderson and you know the Frank James and all these uh-huh. folks would uh, re- would uh, have uniforms of their own that, that did resemble Union uniforms so they could uh, go in and out of uh, towns yeah. unmolested kind of un- un- under disguise so that Tumble T would choose to wear fake military attire in a town like St. Louis where you know you would, people were getting arrested left and right for wearing fake uh-huh. military attire is just kind of a bad choice on his part well he made many bad choices <laughs> in his life there's no doubt about that right all right well uh let's um let's get through uh the year uh the years between the civil war if we want to you know, this is getting to be a long podcast. Um, I hope you don't mind. Um, I, I, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so um, I do want to try to get us up to um, 1888 uh, as quickly uh, as we can. Oh. The experience he had at the old Capitol prison kind of started him on, on the road of, of uh, putting out these narratives, right? Yeah. The, the, himself. the real reason Tumblety started writing his narratives was again, as everything seems to be with him, money. Right. There, the, there was the real possibility starting in 1866 that the government was going to pay people, British citizens, who were arrested for, or lost property or whatever. This eventually became what's known as the Alabama Claims or the uh, Joint High Commission uh, in 1871, but there was a lot of talk in the newspapers in 1866 about compensation, and Tumblety wanted to be compensated. He wanted to be compensated not only for the money that he lost when his office was raided, but he wanted more money as well. Eventually, he would file a claim for $100,000, which in 
with the Joint Claims Commission. That was, that was the real motivation, one of the motivations in his writing his first biography. The first biography is kind of a combination of things. It's an ad for his medical services. It's a justification for why he shouldn't have been arrested. And it's a, a claim against the government for money. And that's basically the three parts of what the first biography is. And certainly I haven't seen the 1871 biography, but the 1872 biography includes a lot of stuff in it that was part of his push to get compensation from the government. And part of that was sending copies of his earlier pamphlet to people like General Sherman and General Lee and other people who would then testify for him or support him in his claim against the government. Eventually, he didn't get anything out of the government because all of his claims for false imprisonment occurred after the signing of the treaty at Appomattox and so therefore was not covered under the Treaty of Washington. And so he got nothing out of the Joint Claims Commission. But as late as 1876, he was still badgering the Congress for money in compensation for his, uh, his imprisonment and his arrest and imprisonment. Throughout much of the 1870s, I guess the high point of Tumblety's life was his trip to uh, San Francisco, uh, where he spent several months out there. He made a trip to Europe in 1869. In fact, throughout the 1870s, he made several trips to Europe, which became the basis for some of his later pamphlets. Eventually, Tumblety ran into something that was going on all across the United States, and that is that the states were beginning to tighten up on their uh, medical professions. And it became increasingly difficult for Tumblety to find any place where he didn't have to have a license to practice. And with that, I believe around the 1882, 1883, Tumblety basically stopped practicing medicine and started just living off of his uh, investments and his savings. And he got in some legal troubles, of course, all along the way. Oh, um, yes. He, uh, well, Pinkerton, apparently, uh, he was brought to the attention of the Pinkerton Detective Agency in the late 1860s for, I don't know if it was for homosexuality or maybe um, uh, abusing one of his um, lackeys or something like that. But apparently. According to, according to Pinkerton, um, they were aware of him during the time he was in Washington during the Civil War. Okay. And uh, who knows what they actually said. A lot of it came out later in 1888 after everything else had come out. Right. But the other thing that, that's mentioned is that there's a young man in England. When Tumblety was in England in 1873 and 74, there was a man arrested for stealing a watch. Uh, it turns out that, that, or I guess it was a chain. In any case, he had he had it in London. He pawned it, and the pawnbroker said he didn't have a reason for it there. And it turned, this was, again, one of those stories where Tumblety hired a young man to be his personal secretary, um, got him to go with him for a while. Uh, he made advances against this young man. The young man didn't like it. He took off. He was carrying this thing of Tumblety's back to London with him and, and put it away. Apparently, uh, Pinkerton was in London at the time and informed the judge as to Tumblety's habits and, and personality, but Tumblety at the time was never brought to court, was never actually involved in this. We don't even know if he recovered his property. It's just a, a newspaper mentioned a couple of times, and that's about it. Okay. The early 1880s. Now, this is when he was arrested for 
supposedly kicking someone down a flight of stairs. Is, is that correct? Uh, I'm trying to remember. That would be Fenton. I think that was in Brooklyn, and I think it was in the 18, late 1860s or early 1860s. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that was in Brooklyn. He was charged with assault in Toronto, apparently, in 1880, and yeah. then was arrested in New Orleans also. Yeah, the uh, the 1880 arrest in uh, Toronto was based on him approaching a young man in an area where homosexuals normally picked up partners. And the individual made objection to that, and Tumblety got hauled into court as a result of that, paid a fine for assault rather than indecent assault or anything else, and was told to get out of the country. The 1881, the, the, uh, the uh, arrest in New Orleans is very interesting based on some of the research that I've done down there. Tumblety, again, met a young man on the street, started talking to him. They had conversations. Tumblety bought him a drink. At one point, the young man claimed to have gone home and to have missed his wallet. That is, it was, his wallet was, was gone. And so he assumed that Tumblety was the one who stole it. Instead of going to the police about that, the young man went to a private detective. And that private detective went and broke into Tumblety's room and claimed to have found burglar tools and $35, which is what the young man had in his wallet at the time, under some papers on Tumblety's bureau or whatever. And so Tumblety was arrested for pickpocketing. During the trial, it turned out that the, the individual, the private detective who had found all this out, basically the judge caught him in a lie. And it turned out that the uh, the background research on the individual who was the private detective is an individual who's, who made his living clandestinely. That is, he blackmailed people. He was involved with the Italian mob in New Orleans. Uh, he was a very disreputable character. That Most of that came later, but at this time, he was basically into, into blackmailing homosexuals. And that's essentially why Tumblety was arrested, because Tumblety wouldn't pay him the money that was required in order for him not to be brought to court. And so the charges were actually dismissed against Tumblety. There was no case. And this individual went to jail right after that for carrying a concealed weapon without a permit. <laughs> Tumblety has just got to be one of the most unlucky individuals in America. Well, I don't history. think it has... I don't think it has so much to do with unlucky is that a lot of the incidents in his life revolve around him being a homosexual and going out trying to find a partner. Yeah. And and in the 19th century that was a crapshoot. Yeah. Because there were whole gangs of people whose only purpose was to entrap people and blackmail them. Yeah. And so many of the instances where Tumblety ends up in trouble with the law is because of this particular aspect of his life. Now, in the early to mid-1880s, like you said, he started going to England um, quite often. Yeah. There are reports that he had an office in Whitechapel during some of these earlier, in, in the earlier 1880s visits. Uh, is there any um, evidence to back up? Other than other than reports, uh, second or third hand reports in American newspapers, I've never seen any references to that at all. Okay. There's no. I mean, there's nothing to say that he didn't. There's right. just nothing to say that he did. Right. 
and he also liked to, to frequent Liverpool. Uh-huh. And one of these uh, occasions, he met Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist. Yes. And um, Douglass actually writes about Tumble Tea to a letter uh-huh. to a, a friend of his, uh, a lady friend of Douglass's back in Rochester, which is a pretty interesting. It's it's very brief, but Douglass seemed fairly impressed with Tumble Tea. And, and, um, so they he did. Seemed, in the, he in seemed the like end, an his... interesting guy. And, in the end, his judgment was overall favorable. Yeah. Okay, let's um, talk about 1888 then. When do we know that Tumble Tea uh, came to England in, in 1888? I don't think that anybody knows exactly when Tumble Tea came to London that year. That would be a very important thing to find out. It is reported that he was there as early as June. There's when, no Right. There's would, no record of that. Go ahead. Oh, it, he met um, Douglas, though, in 1887, correct? Right, so, yes. So he would have returned um, back to the United States, to New York yeah. in 1887 in fact, and then left again. We can find his return trips on the passenger list in 1887, so we know where he was at that time. And we know his, his going to London in 1887 because he's mentioned in a newspaper at the time. But there is not a similar mention for 1888, which would be, of course, the time we would really want to know when he actually went to London. And he d- and he doesn't um, really say himself. Um, no, in, he doesn't. In the New York World interview. So the earliest date that we have for Tumble Tea being in London in 1888 is when he was arrested for gross indecency. Is that right? It's one of yes. He's a listed. One of the dates that he's he's arrested for is in July, and that's the earliest that anybody can actually place him in England. Okay. Explain a little bit about what went on here. Okay. As much as you know. I mean, it's this is this is some of the mysterious aspects. Yes. Of there's a, there's some very strange things about Tumblety's arrest in London. We can break them down into several different pieces. One is the actual arrest itself. And that is he's arrested specifically in November, uh, November 7th, I believe, right. for four cases of indecent assault, ranging from July to no- the last one being November 2nd. Indecent assault is a relatively new concept. It comes about as a result of the criminal a law amendment act of 1885 where they changed the age of consent for for girls they raised it uh, as a result of some of the articles that were coming out but also it criminalizes all physical sexual contact between men up to that point you had to prove that sodomy had occurred and that was a major crime after 1885 indecent assault simply implies that there's physical sexual contact between two males and so this was a part of the law that was passed in 1885 and indecent assault started to be prosecuted after that point if you look at prosecutions listed in the new in the london newspapers from 1885 through 1890 what you see is that for the most part These are individuals who are found doing this once and then arrested and they're they're either convicted or or let go. The conviction rate in London, according to a study that I read for indecent assault during this period, is about a third. So a third of all the people who were arrested for indecent assault, and there were, according to this, an average of eight cases a year, 
a third of them were convicted. The problem with tumble tea is that this is not a one-time event. This is four times with four separate individuals. You have to wonder why or where this information came from. Uh, one of the things about the Criminal Amendment Act is it's nicknamed the Blackmailers Act because quite frequently, as we talked about before, homosexuals were entrapped into a physical position and then blackmailed. If this were a standard blackmail operation, they would have uh, enticed Tumblety. They would have then had him arrested, and that would have been it. That would be one time. Blackmailers don't wait three, four months in order to, to entrap their victim. There's too many risks there. Somebody had to be watching Tumblety, and the only people we can think of would be the police. That is, in order for them to have a record of him having relations with four separate men on four separate dates over a five- or six-month period, the police have to have been involved. Why they chose to follow Tumblety is anybody's guess. But as far as I can tell, this is the only case for indecent assault that involves this kind of scrutiny. Every other case is, is either one time or they refer to a series of events, but they're not specific about it. But the fact that they chose to prosecute him for four separate instances with four separate individuals suggests that they were serious about it. So there is that problem. Obviously, you know, Little Child refers to a large dossier on Tumblety. This may be part of what was in that large dossier is that they decided to get rid of him, get him out of the country or whatever. But it's one of the, the things that argues that Tumblety was, was a suspect in something for the police. The other part of this is how he became Jack the Ripper. He was arrested on the 7th of November. There's questions about police bail and everything else, but eventually... He, he basically stayed in London, either in custody or not in custody, until about the 20th of November, and then he fled. Up to the time of his arraignment at the Old Bailey on the 16th of November, there's nothing in the American press that, remo that involves Tumblety. On the 17th of November, the uh, World News Service sends a cable to New York that simply says a man named Cumblety, starting with a K, was one of the hundreds arrested in association with the uh, Ripper uh, investigation. From that point, you can look through newspapers in the United States and see the evolution of this story, all of them based on this same cable. It starts out as, yeah, he's one of hundreds associated. Yes, the police are interested in him in connection with the Whitechapel. He is Jack the Ripper. By the time, three or four days after that cable gets to New York, he has become Jack the Ripper in American newspapers. And that um, is one of the reasons why people wonder about English newspapers. If you look at English newspapers, any time anybody was arrested in connection with the Whitechapel murders, there was stuff all over the place. Their names were out there, their descriptions were out there. The English newspapers don't mention Tumblety at all. Right. Um, now, in October of 1888, 
there are reports um, in the British press about um, an American being a tall American wearing a slouch hat being arrested. No one's named, and there was apparently another American arrested wearing a slouch hat. I mentioned the slouch hat just for the sake mm-hmm. of our listeners because that's what Tumble T later claimed. Um, yes, had occurred to him when he he claimed he was arrested for the Whitechapel murders. Uh-huh. So so um, is is there a chance that there were actually two arrests, but that his apprehension for the being suspected of the Whitechapel crimes came prior to um, his arrest on gross indecency charges, and that maybe the when the British press referred to an American being arrested with wearing a slouch hat, they were talking about Tumble T. Well, he only refers to one arrest, and there's only record of one arrest for a Francis Tumble T. Yeah. Um, there's no other, you know, I would think that people, people who were interested in this in England would have gone through the arrest records or the trial records with a fine-toothed comb by this point. Yeah. Um, there seems to be no other arrest record, so one would have to assume that they destroyed that record, if that were the case, um, or that that was somebody else. Right. Or maybe, you know, I don't know what the um, the procedure necessarily was when they would uh, uh, bring people in for questioning about the murders, but maybe it wasn't even a, a kind of a formal arrest. Um, uh-huh. If if anything like this uh, had occurred to Tumble T to begin with, now um, you say that the American press, through a single cable, with the one that spelled his name with a K, was the origin of of the stories about Tumble T being arrested for the Whitechapel murders. Are you? S- suspicious that he may have been responsible for that that cable himself oh no i don't think he was responsible for it where, i think where would that, that have originated if if tumble t was never um i don't suspected? know i i don't know why the um the original cable was sent uh it may be that it was a slow news day uh, i don't know but i can tell you exactly why it spread so fast in the United States. And that was simply that for much of the summer of 1888, American newspapers were sitting on the sidelines. The biggest story of the century was being played out in England, and all they could do was reprint things from England. Tumblety was a godsend for American newspapers. They could fill columns about him because he was an American suspect. People knew who he was. You know, they could drum, drum up stories from the past. They could make up stories from the past, and they could sell newspapers. And that was the key right there: is that that Tumblety allowed them to sell a lot more newspapers than they had sold before, because now they had somebody that they could deal with who was their own. The problem with Tumblety as a suspect is that he doesn't show up in English newspapers. And he doesn't show up in any official correspondence from Scotland Yard. And that's that should be troublesome to anybody. That's a serious problem. I mean, we don't we don't have all of the uh, files that um, from Scotland Yard anymore. Huh? Um, True. Unfortunately, True. there's also supposedly a suspects file that uh-huh. listed um, hundreds of names that um, I don't believe exists anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I don't for a second doubt that the English police were looking at Tumblety as a possible suspect. Um, <clears throat> at this point in time, they were looking at any odd and unusual characters, and Tumblety fits that bill on both counts. Odd and unusual. They had no clue as to, as to who they should be looking for, and so they looked for anybody that was unusual. Right. <clears throat> it would be almost impossible for them not to have been looking at Tumblety. Okay, so Tumblety jumps bail yes. from, from his arrest um, on the gross indecency charges. And under an assumed name, takes uh, flight to France, to Le Havre, gets on a steamship, and, and um, comes back to New York. And the press is right on top of him. And are, in fact, waiting at, at the gangplank when he departs. Yes. Um from from the ship there are the reports that um scotland yard sent a detective down from canada to keep an eye on tumblety for one reason or another the uh detective in in the now i guess some folks i i believe even maybe dispute that this even occurred but um the detective interviewed in the newspaper barnes i believe his name was um wouldn't comment one way or another on on um the reasons that um that he was staking out Tumblety after he first arrived back in New York. And That's interesting because I'd never heard his name before. Wasn't uh, it Barnes? And, I'd never heard that before. And, um, and Evans Ganey? I don't Or don't maybe they speculate. There, um, there, the, the, the detective is mentioned uh, in two separate newspapers in New York. In the New York Sun... And in the world, uh, no, I'm sorry. In the world and in the Herald, and the uh, the world who sent the original cable about Tumblety was basically, I, if it were just in there, I would say, okay, it's something else that they've made up that makes the story a little bit better. But the <clears throat> the Herald says the same thing on a slightly different perspective. Uh, they mention him as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I've often wondered about this detective and that, you know, the possibility of Scotland Yard sending somebody down. I think there's a much more practical reason why this detective was sent to watch Tumblety, if in fact that's what he was doing. Remember that there are two people who stood Tumblety's bail over in London. They will lose all of that money as a result of him running away. They're probably much more interested in where Tumblety is than Scotland Yard is. So Tumblety's at, at um, McNamara's lodging house. Uh huh. Um, and so, so you you believe that that um, he's being watched by a, a detective? I think you, you I, buy those reports. I, I buy those reports simply because they're in more than one newspaper and they're from different perspectives. So it's not the same reporter making it up. Right. I I believe that there's somebody there watching Tumblety. Yes. Now. I think it's in the world that Barnes, B-Y-R-N-E-S. Oh, what you're referring to is Inspector Burns, who's the chief of New York detectives. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, he's somebody else. He, okay. So there, so there was – sorry, that was my confusion. But nevertheless, um, Tumblety uh, slips the noose again. Yes. Uh, from, from McNamara's. But n- nothing is really done about it. I mean, um, mm-hmm. now what – there's been some speculation about this New York World um, interview that Tumblety uh-huh. gave, 
and the ease with which the reporter was able to locate him. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, what what are your ideas about what what Tumblety's um, motive was? I mean, he he came back to the United States and found, found himself being accused of being Jack the Ripper, and uh, I mean there there seems to be uh, some collusion on the part between Tumblety and the New York World Reporter. Would you agree? I'd agree with that. Yes. <laughs> Here here's the thing. Um, Tumblety comes back to New York. He's under surveillance by various people, but he suddenly somehow manages to slip away, and he's gone for a considerable length of time. And the implication being that he's run away somewhere, and he turns up in the exotic location of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout that time, if you look at, if you look at where, at the letters that are testimonials in his pamphlet that comes out that next year, he's soliciting people to give him testimonials. Some of them occur in December, are dated December of 1888. Some are d- dated in January of 1888. Some of them are, are in February. But there are, through that entire sequence, he's getting in touch with people and asking them for letters that he can then print in his, his justification. So he's not, it's not that people don't know where he is. Some people know where he is. He's not gone very far, and he's not hiding very well. And then, suddenly, he's outed, and I use that word cautiously, at Mrs. Lamb's boarding house in Brooklyn. The very next day, there's an interview with him in the, in the uh, newspaper. That seems way too contrived to me. I think that the whole thing was set up so that he could emerge from hiding and once again be a public person rather than, than hiding out in New York somewhere. I think it was carefully staged that way. In this interview, he blasts the, the British police, claims that they were really at, intent on robbing him, mm-hmm. um, and that the only reason he was arrested was because he was an American wearing a slouch hat. Uh-huh. You're... Um, opinion of course is that this all was done to cover up for Tumblety his arrests on the gross indecency charges yeah i think that that basically it would be better for him to be accused of being jack the ripper and everybody would laugh at that than to say yes this man is a homosexual who's been arrested for uh, for four separate counts in london that would not go over very well the fact that he's arrested as, as Jack the Ripper and he people can laugh that off, right. you know, that's acceptable. But to have been accepted as a homosexual or arrested as a homosexual, that would be bad. There's no way to recover from that. You've said earlier that you believe that he's the one of the least plausible suspects to be Jack the Ripper. Others would say that this article, uh, you know, is the closest any police suspect short of leather apron uh, uh-huh. maybe has came to acknowledge he was questioned for the Whitechapel murders and, sure. and and deny it he states that he visited Whitechapel he was well acquainted with the neighborhood i believe he says he uh, uh-huh. says that he was curious as most londoners were and went down as they did in droves to um, see one of the murder sites when he was 
uh, arrested. He doesn't specify which one. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So Devil's Advocate would would say, "Oh well, here's Tumblety placing himself in Whitechapel during the times of the Jack the Ripper murders." It is too bad, you know, for the sake of our twenty first twenty first century, you know, viewers <laughs> looking back on this individual. Um, you know, more can be read into it than oh, sure. now at this safe distance than what he intended. Well, yeah, when we started opinion. this, when we started this, I mentioned that Tumblety had two sides, and the thing, the thing that I conclude with when I'm finished with what I've written is simply that people read into Tumblety whatever they want to read into him, and people in the 19th century had the same problem that we have today: is that nobody really knows who Tumblety was. Now let's talk uh, before we wrap this up. Um, sure. More specifics about his uh, his suspect candidacy, and that's that. Or the points against him. You you have different opinions, I'm sure, than than um, because you've so thoroughly researched his life than uh-huh. than most. Uh, the main arguments you have against Tumblety that people will say is are basic um, physical characteristics. He, he was too old at the time of the murders. He um, was too tall, dressed too flamboyantly, d- doesn't fit um, any witness descriptions. And his sexual preference, um, for those who um, believe that that the Ripper crimes uh, were done by sexually a sexually motivated serial killer. What are your reasons to give that that make you believe that Tumble T is not Jack the Ripper? Well, I think that that my basic problem with him as Jack the Ripper is that it would be so out of character for what I know about him and how he lived his life. He wasn't interested in women, but I don't think he hated them the way it's made been been portrayed. He had no medical skill in the sense of surgery and and he was at least in his writings and the way people describe him was entirely against using knives so he would have no he had no anatomical knowledge we can see that easily in his uh sorry we can see that he had no anatomical knowledge in any of his writings i mean it's very clear from his descriptions of medicine all the other things are possible but you know the the thing is when uh, when the the book was first written about Tumblety when when he was first accused as a suspect he seemed perfect because he left London he disappeared and was never heard from again one of the things that I've been able to look at is that he was in fact heard from again in fact he was quite prominent throughout the 1890s people knew who he was and where he was he didn't disappear he wasn't gone mysteriously he lived his life out. And there's no other instances of this. So you would have to assume that for a very brief period, he somehow went crazy, killed five women, and then stopped. And that just doesn't seem possible. What's your opinion on the little child letter? I think that the little child had his own biases. I think that his comments about Oscar Wilde and during Wilde's trial show a certain bias against homosexuals. Right. Uh, and I think very clearly that that comes into play with Tumblety. I think Little Child made a lot of mistakes in the letter that he that he wrote that indicate that perhaps he wasn't quite in the loop the way other people were. 
the fact that he didn't know about certain things that should, he should have known about indicate that he wasn't really part of that. The other significant thing, I think, is that when, when he mentions the large dossier on, the, on Tumblety, he says that the police had a large do- dossier. He doesn't say that his special branch had a large dossier on Tumblety. There are other things. I, just, I think that that little child knew about Tumblety. It's obvious that he had some memory of that, but that he was expressing an opinion the same way that Anderson or Swanson or, any, or, or any of the others expressed their opinions, and I don't think any of them knew. And um, finally, after you've done all of this work on him, what, what's, what's your opinion of Tumblety as, as a man? I kind of feel sorry for him, but he got into so much trouble. I mean, he, he, how do you feel about him as, as a person? <laughs> I think that he would be an interesting person to know, but I certainly wouldn't want to make him a close friend. I think that he had the kind of personality that would be ingratiating to people, but that once you got past that to anything else, that he was probably uh, uh, a difficult person to know. Um, I think that I would agree with you. At times, I feel very sorry for him. At times, I feel he gets what he deserves. Overall, I think he had an interesting life, and uh, that's all we can ask for. I agree. Now, is your book just a straight-out biography of Tumblety? Yes. Um, How much... I mean, obviously, it wouldn't have been written had he not been accused of being Jack the Ripper, but how much... Of the Jack the Ripper case, are did you tackle in your book? Almost nothing. Uh, I start right out by saying that this is not a book about Jack the Ripper. And I have one chapter that talks about his involvement in Whitechapel. And it talks more about his reaction to it and other people's reaction to it. I don't go through the murders. I don't try and claim one way or the other whether he's Jack the Ripper. For me, what is important at that point is the effect that it has on his life and this careful balancing act. And so, in essence, the, the, I couldn't write the book without talking at least a little bit about the Whitechapel murders, but I don't attempt to go into them in any detail. Um, I assume you do, um, just for the sake of his history, debunk some of the myths that have arisen, like the Uteri collection. Yes, I talk a lot about Dunham and that newspaper article uh, and and the events that went on in Washington during the Civil War that he was involved with. Well, I certainly hope that you find a publisher for it because I, I want to be... One of the first to read it. it <laughs> well, hopefully, great. hopefully, uh, I will get somebody to to publish it within the next year or so. Well, I hope I hope so too. Um, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up, Tim. Um, okay. You've been listening to Rippercast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders, uh, with our special guest Tim Rudin, and his book will be called, as far as we know now, "The Great American Indian Herb Doctor." Medicine, Sex, and Respectability in the Victorian Era, which is a thorough, I imagine, biography of Dr. Francis Tumblety. And I thank you so much for being on the show today, Tim. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you very much. 
and that was RipperCast, episode 24, A Portrait of Francis Tumblety, with special guest Tim Reardon. And I want to again thank Tim Reardon for being on the show today. I also want to thank Allie Ryder for participating at the beginning of the show. She had technical difficulties. These things happen with podcasts and had to drop off. But I thought it was a great show nonetheless. And we are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, available via the iTunes Music Store's podcast section, keyword Jack the Ripper, or at www.rippernet.com. I encourage people to send any of their comments or questions or suggestions to our email address, rippernet at mac.com. And I thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week.